Hi, I'm George Techmanchub here with the Newsmaker of the Year, Mr. Bruce Cull and Brittany Salonen from the NFAA and the NFAA Foundations. Hey, guys, how's it going? Good morning. Good morning, George. It's a nice cold morning here in South Dakota. <laughs> Newsmaker of the Year, Bruce. I saw the headline. Did you yeah, see that? Yeah, that was, uh, you know, in a small town, that's easy to do. But no, you know, <laughs> archery, uh, archery was uh, obviously a huge part of that. And we're pretty proud that... Um, we got our designation this last year being the world's largest archery center, you know, and hosting those big tournaments just made it uh, a little more attainable, I guess. So, yeah, but it was a nice article. I mean, you know, yeah, it, it, really, it, yeah. it captured a lot of the accomplishments of the past year by the uh, Easton NFAA Yankton Archery Center and your staff and yourself, of course, yeah. and getting all of those major events into Yankton, all of which, um, as we've talked about, have had a huge impact, not just locally, but regionally in terms of the economy and everything else. And I thought that that was a very nice testament, you know, yeah, that, that article that just came out. So, absolutely. Yeah, folks want to look at what I'm talking about. You can uh, just uh, do a Google search for Bruce Cull and Newsmaker of the Year, and I have a feeling it'll just pop right up. There's a very yeah, but I think uh, it's on our social media or Facebook and stuff, too. So that's oh, yeah. Well, there's a nice article about the uh, this past year's accomplishments at the center and uh, uh congratulations to all of you guys for yeah well, thank for you we're here to talk about the vegas shoot which is coming up in less than a month as we speak in fact i believe let's see today is the fifth so pretty much it starts one month from now yep that's exactly correct and it's uh, looking like it's going to be a rip roar of a year in vegas for participants this year um Folks, it looks like we are on track for a full-on Vegas shoot, as we were hoping for and to a degree predicting. So what are the numbers shaping up like? You know, right now, we're. Um, it's interesting for, for those that remember 2020, that was our biggest ever. And actually, that was right about the time the pandemic hit. In fact, we were all had our fingers crossed and everything else. You know, it was February of 2020, obviously. Um, and we had, you know, China and I remember Korea backed out right at the last minute, and yet we still have the biggest one ever, and we hit just right at 4,000 people. Um, right now, we're on track when we look at our year to date to that year, we're actually up just a little bit. So we're about 2,200 pre-registered. And, um, you know, with a month ago, that, that's kind of what the numbers have been. Um, we're just keeping our fingers crossed again and hoping that this whole COVID thing um, runs its course and we're able to pull off what we all want to go do, which is have the Vegas shoot. Another big aspect of the Vegas shoot, of course, is that that vendor exhibit, the uh, the show that goes alongside with the shoot itself. One of the things about that show historically is it's been free to the public. Is that still the case this year? Yes. In fact, um, you know, that without a doubt is, is over the years, you know, in the 25 years that I've run this, um, it's been interesting because it's such a neat mix of, you know, the manufacturers are there and, and those that have an emphasis on target equipment. Um, you know, I've had several of them say, you know, this is their biggest event. Um, and it's cool because they have the ultimate customer there. They have a lot of dealers there. They have some international distributors. It's kind of a, a neat little laid back um, show where people can actually spend some good quality time, you know, talking with those companies whether it be the the shooter, you know, the ultimate customer or a dealer. So, yeah, I mean, we're we're on pace with that. Um, all of our big sponsors are excited. I think it's finally time to get out. And, you know, I, again, for those that are kind of wondering what's going on in the world, 
Um, we have one really great thing going for us in Vegas. Um, as we speak, the CES show is happening, which is the Consumer Electronics Show, which is the largest convention, I think, in the world. And, um, you know, they've got their own little issues, but it, it's on. They've got everything's going well. We've got the SHOT Show, which I think most people know, the Shooting, Hunting, and Outdoor Trade Show, or as we refer to it, the Gun Show, um, which, again, is, you know, way bigger than anything we do. It's 100,000 people. And then Safari Club International is actually the week before us. So there's a lot of big shows happening, um, you know, and I think a lot of people have been watching it. New Year's Eve, Vegas had 500, half, you know, half a million people there. So I think that um, things are working their way properly and, and hopefully we're going to have a, you know, a good opportunity and a good show again. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that's an important consideration since there was no ATA show last year. There is going to be sort of a, uh, a shrunken, shall we say, version of the ATA show coming up this weekend. Um, I believe that this is going to be the first big consumer show for the sport of archery since the biggest ever in 2020. So I think that's an added attraction that uh, a lot of folks count on being able to get to face to face with all the manufacturers, the uh, specialists in making strings and releases and all sorts of gear for the sport. And it's all under one roof. And, and in a lot of those cases, you can buy stuff at the event too. So that's a, another big attraction. Um, oftentimes, Lancaster in the past has had their big full-on booth. Uh, calling it a booth is not really giving it justice. It's a it's basically an archery shop on wheels. Are they planning to be back? Yeah, yes. Uh, and Brittany, you can fill everybody in on that. I'm sure they're on schedule for the same thing. But Yeah, all of our major vendors are going to be back again this year. I know a lot of them are excited. Some of it's their first show and their first time out of the factory in a couple years. So, you know, every, every conversation I have, they're excited. Yeah. So that's, you know, uh, a huge added bonus of the Vegas shoot free of charge once again. Honestly, Bruce, if you wanted to, you could probably charge 20 bucks per head just to get into yeah. that part of the thing. And nobody would bat. Well, some people would complain, but most people would not bat an eye. Being able to get access to that kind of thing is uh, is a big you know, added the interesting bonus. part of that, George, is, and you know what, I, I have wear another hat being a, a retailer of 40 years. But, um, you know, when we first took that the Vegas shoot over um, in 1999, um, that was one of the issues that we dealt with. And I really had a hard time, you know, charging people to come in to buy something. Um, and then, you know, the vendors were of that mindset also. You know, I think that's a real, it's a catch 22, but, um, you know, we looked at other ways to make up some income. And, um, you know, that's when, when this thing's all said and done, you know, we're, we're we are a nonprofit um, and literally speaking, um, you know, this shows a big multi-million dollar event, but at the end of the day, you know, we promoted archery, which is our mission and our vision. And, um, you know, we just want people to enjoy it and, and get as many as we can exposed to it. So that's kind of what our goal was. What about registration for the event itself? There's also a deadline to avoid the uh, late fee. Is that right? Yep. So we're ticking down. We have a little less than two weeks to get registered early to get that early discount. Um, so January 17th is the last day. Okay, so if you haven't registered for the Vegas shoot itself, there will be an upcharge after the 17th. And, and the reason for the upcharge being applied to everybody who registers after that date is pretty simple. It has to do with fairness and the extra 
staff time and expense required to get those late registrations into the system, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're already this year feeling like, man, I wish that date was a week earlier. <laughs> so we had some extra time to kind of, you know, plan on final numbers. Um, but yeah, so two weeks out is, is pl- we think is plenty of notice. Yeah, and you yeah. know, the, the other thing about that is kind of like I was talking about with the charging people to get in, you know, a, a fee to come into the show on the shoot. <clears throat> when we when we did all of our analysis on, you know, our, our profit and loss and trying to figure out what's going on, it, we don't even look at it really as a late fee. We look at everything prior to it as a discount. Um, yeah. Which, you know, in, in all reality, that's what it is. And, you know, some people say, oh, what's the big deal? Well, we actually you know, really in a year like this, especially with not knowing what was going to happen, this could affect, um, you know, reducing staff numbers at the last minute. Um, It could be, you know, a lot of expenses there that we could incur. Uh, It could be a reduction. It could be an increase, you know, in trying to get more people. So it's, it's, you know, the fact that it's only two weeks prior um, is really fair, I think, to everybody. You know, we well, especially you're going to get a tsunami of, of final entries, relatively speaking, just before that deadline, historically, at least from what I understand. Yes. Yeah, we usually get about 1,500 plus that last week, which is yeah. a little scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, that, that kind of explains why maybe you'd like to have it spread out another extra week if it were up to you, Brittany, you know, make yeah. it three weeks before <laughs> instead of two. But as it stands, I think two weeks beforehand is pretty fair. If you consider things like airfares and things like that, if you haven't bought your tickets two weeks beforehand, even now in these times, um, you might be paying more. So uh, now if folks are listening to this and they haven't done their their Vegas stuff, everything's in one convenient place on the web to uh, get that going. And that's thevegasshoot.com. Yep. Well, Bruce, every year at Vegas, one of the things that has been, um, uh, I don't know, a touchstone of the event uh, is that we always have something special. Now, some of the special stuff has been pretty over the top, like the time <laughs> that Sergio Pagni was able to ride through the arena on a flaming chariot. But you've always got something in mind. Uh, are we going to see something special this year as we're all coming back to Vegas? Well, you know, there's a couple things. Um, one of them is going to be a big surprise. I'm not going to tell anybody that yet, but on a future podcast, hopefully as we get closer, um, we'll probably let that word out. But, you know, one of the other things that's going on, we've always had our, you know, our, our World Series final or the World Cup final, as it's been called on, you know, Saturday night, which is pretty cool with the head-to-head world champions crowned. Um, and we've always done an Archer's Appreciation Night. And we've had different sponsors of that over the year. Well, this year, we're kind of proud to say that the Easton uh, company and their 100th anniversary is going to do a little celebration. And um, I can tell you there's going to be some pretty cool surprises Um involved in that little night that it may uh it may make the chariot look like it was in slow motion let's just put it that way and okay. um, and then you know i think there's going to be a lot of prizes a lot of fun a lot of entertainment and then we've got a special thing that um we're going to do uh, as the vegas shoot that is going to be um pretty cool for all the spectators and everybody in attendance and you know i'm, I'm going to save that uh for a little later announcement but i think everybody will get pretty good kick out of it. I think it'll be pretty interesting. Well, I'm a little worried, Bruce, because I, I understand that Greg Easton's going to be dual wielding machine gun type uh, t-shirt, t-shirt cannons. 
you know, and the other thing is too, a lot of people don't know it, but my assistant, my right-hand man in the chariot um, was Juan Carlos Holgado. And um, JC, oh as we call him, will be there also. And it's kind of a problem when Greg and JC and I get together. And uh, we've had a lot of nicknames uh, over the years, but all I can tell you is it's probably worth watching and attending. It should be pretty interesting. Uh-huh. You ever been driven? You ever been driven anywhere by J.C. Holgado? Uh, yes, once. And yeah. again, the three of us were the ones that were involved in that, and that's a whole another podcast. Yeah, let's just say that that the the stops are coming off, and we're going to see some some things that maybe you'll never see anywhere else when those three are getting together. Greg Easton oh, yeah. with his dual wielding machine gun t-shirt cannons, Juan Carlos driving the chariot, and Bruce standing over the whole deal. <laughs> well, but you can, I can tell you this, when, when you work with a place like the South Point that has 2,500 employees, and they're obviously a big casino, um, it's very interesting that the fire marshal and the safety protocol director both know me by sight and by first name. And we have a lot of very intimate conversations. So there's a little prelude to what's coming. All right. Well, I can't wait. Personally, I'm sure that I share the thoughts of many of our listeners when I say we can't wait to get back to Vegas and get back to archery. Bruce and Brittany, I want to thank you so much for everything you've been doing, uh, all the hard work of your staff. And uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing you again in Vegas. Absolutely. Well, thank you, George, for everything you do. Thanks, George. And all of us headed to Vegas are certainly looking forward to getting back together for the first time in a couple of years. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing many of you at the Vegas shoot this year. As you know, in the last podcast, we provided you with a sneak preview of the first chapter of the Easton 100th anniversary book, which is being created right now. That book is going to be published in the third quarter of 2022. I'd like to share with you the second chapter now. The title is Moving Up. In 1940, almost 18 years after making his first wooden bow, Doug Easton built a shop and a custom showroom right next to the new family home that he'd built at 1807 Fifth Avenue, practically in the middle of downtown Los Angeles today, just a couple of blocks from the workshop he'd been using for six years. The following year, he and Mary had a second son, Robert Douglas Easton, who went by Bob. The family had finally entered a time of stability. The 24 SRT Arrow. After five years of development, Doug Easton released the Easton 24 SRT, an aluminum arrow that basically changed everything. It wasn't just a better product in a different material. It represented a true paradigm shift. What my grandfather did for archery was revolutionary, says third-generation Easton president Greg Easton. I know that's an overused word, but it wasn't just a bit different. It was such a better product that there were people who thought that you shouldn't be allowed to use it in competition. The Human Factor Beyond technical obstacles, the most daunting impediment for Doug was resistance from fellow archers entrenched in the millennia-long tradition of wood shafts. Initially, some in the archery establishment pushed back hard, considering use of these new aluminum arrows to be cheating. 
but the uptake on the aluminum arrow was almost universal among competitive shooters in just a couple of years, says Greg. People thought, how could I not want them? I'm going to shoot so much better, have such a dramatic improvement in performance. The technological change that Doug had introduced made for a better instrument that simply elevated human capabilities. Over the ensuing decades, Easton would repeatedly encounter those reluctant to accept change. But Doug, an engineer and a true iconoclast at heart, like the generations of Easton innovators who would follow, was willing to buck tradition. The uncompromising pursuit of better performance would become a hallmark of the Easton brand. An Historic Win Doug's efforts in developing the first high-performance aluminum arrow were validated when he gave Larry Hughes, a Southern California archer, one of the first sets of Easton 24 SRT shafts, size 1820. Hughes used them to win the 1941 U.S. National Championship. Hughes dominated everybody, said Eric Watts, who rose to the position of president of Easton and had heard the story since he joined the company in 1979. And people reacted. Everybody had to have it, and that opened the door to aluminum before governing bodies could ban it. Arrows for all. When people realized just how much better aluminum arrows were than wood, and what their easy availability would mean for the sport, demand exploded. The Fifth Avenue shop was flooded with orders, and approval by the governing bodies of the sport made widespread adoption a certainty. Within the decade, aluminum arrows became all that competitive archers would shoot. Doug Easton had forever changed one of humanity's oldest sports. At this time, aluminum arrows cost as much as the matched four-footed cedar target arrows of that time, which were $24 a dozen. This was a lot of money when the average wage was less than $1 per hour. Today, an equivalent dozen arrows would cost $220 if their price had increased with the rate of inflation since 1946. Jim Easton in 2001. Room for Improvement As game-changing as the new aluminum arrows were, they were not without their problems. One major issue was that the commercially available Alcoa 24S aluminum stock was heavy and still too soft for this application. The arrows were still prone to bending. Arrows would sometimes only be good for a few shots before becoming damaged, and this was just one more issue that Doug would not rest until he had resolved it. War On December 7th of 1941, Japanese forces attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, drawing the United States into World War II. With aluminum a strategic resource crucial to the war effort, Doug was not able to keep sourcing the raw materials needed to build his new arrows. The future of his business, founded upon a leisure sport at a time when the public was focused on the prospect of years of belt tightening, looked uncertain. And so, Mary and Doug, who was ineligible for the war due to his hunting injury, turned their attention to other means of earning an income. Over the coming years, Doug was able to make use of his fine woodworking background to secure several government contracts, designing and building elegant, lightweight wooden map cases for Allied pilots. The map case venture became something of a family effort. Bob and Jim both have memories of first playing under the wood bench among the cedar wood shavings and then being tasked with gluing leather strips onto the map cases for hours on end. 
the 24 SRTX. In 1945, with the war over, Doug and Mary launched into rebuilding their archery business. Doug had proven that even his initial rudimentary aluminum model was superior to wood arrows, at least for the first few shots. But an aluminum arrow that was merely good did not satisfy him. Having gone through the Great Depression, his father's financial hardship, and the austerity of World War II, Doug was always cautious with money. But he so believed in his mission that he invested a significant portion of his savings, $8,000 then, over $120,000 today, into buying tools and materials to set up his own metalworking shop. In the summer of 1945, he built his first precision hydraulic draw bench to draw aluminum arrows to the specifications he wanted. Even the bench itself was a breakthrough. Looking back today, Greg Easton says, Back when my grandfather was first looking at draw benches, a lot of them were chain-driven. That's so even today. Because other manufacturers were usually drawing big tubes, precision wasn't so important. Well, if you're trying to draw a thin arrow and the thing's chucking along, you're going to get an arrow that has a lot of variation in its wall thickness, and that won't work. So he had to design and build a draw bench that was much more precise and controllable. He also figured out some other things about helping to keep the arrows straight. Because if you draw an arrow and you just keep pulling when it comes out of the die, there's this kickback that will cause the arrow to bend. He found a way to reduce that kickback so it didn't damage the arrow when you're finished doing the draw. The X Factor Over the next year, Doug developed a proprietary heat treatment process that improved the strength of the soft 2024 alloy used in the original 24 SRT by more than 30%. He'd gone through the standard processes and only got to a certain amount of strength, explains Greg Easton. When he did the SRTX, which was the extra strength, he added another process that's very unusual in aluminum processing. It may be that his lack of formal education helped Doug in his willingness to do things differently. He was able to achieve a level of precision for the inside and outside diameter of the arrow tubing ten times better than any other commercial tubing available at the time. The accomplishment bears repeating. To this point, no aluminum tubing had ever been produced for any application with comparable strength or straightness. For archers, the result was the first high-strength arrow shaft made with exact uniformity of weight, spine, and inside diameter. The tolerances were so tight that shafts did not even need to be sorted after fabrication because every shaft of any given size had precisely the same weight and diameter. That specific process, a process still used today, has been kept a trade secret since 1946. Consistently Dependable even given Easton's own subsequent innovations, the 24 SRTX would continue to be produced and sold until 1989, its performance remaining relevant for more than 40 years. The promise for the archer was that if you buy one today, and you buy one in 10 years, it'll hit in the exact same place on the target. In fact, in the early 1960s, Easton ran an ad. The only difference is there is no difference. Doug took something that was a custom-made item that only worked within a very narrow range for a specific individual at great cost, and he democratized it. Now what you've got is a durable product that works for anybody. It comes in about 16 sizes, 
But if you pick the right size and you assemble it correctly for your specific needs, you are assured of having a dozen arrows that would all shoot to the exact same place. That was a game changer. On July 13th of 1953, the 24SRTX became the first trademarked aluminum arrow in the world. The digits and letter have a specific meaning. 24S is Alcoa's designation for a particular alloy marketed in Europe as Duralumin and dating back to the early 1930s. So the 24S, known today as 2024, is the material. The R refers to rolling, cold working, and drawing. The T is for heat treated. So 24SRT indicates that alloy 24S has been heat treated and cold worked. The X was Doug's trademark, proprietary processes that he put it through. The X designated processes, not publicly disclosed, yielded a strength greater than other standard materials. Other alloys, similarly, would start with the four-digit identifier, 7001, which Easton originally used in the X7 Arrow, 7075, the first high-strength aircraft aluminum, 7178, which replaced 7001, and so on. The identifiers are standard numbers used to indicate the various constituents in a given aluminum alloy. For example, 2024 alloy has certain amounts of silicone, copper, zinc, and 7178 has zinc, copper, titanium. The proportions of the elements in the metal give it its specific characteristics. Easton uses a second four-digit number to refer to arrow size. The first two digits refer to the diameter, the second two the thickness of the shaft wall. For example, size 2117 runs to the nearest 2164th of an inch diameter when converted from a decimal with a wall thickness of 17 thousandths of an inch and an inside diameter held to 50 millionths of an inch. Doug's accessible, high-performance arrows came at a time when returning soldiers and their families were hungry for recreation after the deprivations of war. A post-war boom. The overall population was on the rise, and California, like many places, was undergoing a population boom and was developing as a hotbed of target archery. Doug's entire output was quickly snapped up. By this time, he'd put aside the wood staves, draw knives, and sandpaper of bow making, and instead was working more than 12 hours a day to meet demand for aluminum arrows while still working to improve the processes and make even better products. You would think a master bow maker would shoot the best bow. The fact is, Doug rarely had a good bow because customers would insist on buying his bow. Many a night before a tournament or hunt, he would be rushing to finish a bow to use the next day. Jim Easton As he had during World War II, Doug contributed once again as the Cold War set in. But rather than woodwork, the new contracts resulted from his superior ability to work with aluminum. In 1947, at the request of the U.S. government, he supplied precision high-strength aluminum tubing for radiological dosimeters, he also devised cases enabling dosimeters to be safely carried in a shirt pocket. This was one of the first times Easton applied techniques developed in building archery equipment to other fields. Originally for civil defense, the parts Easton produced also made their way into medical devices. Nor would this practice end. Through the coming decades, 
Easton continued to build its technological skill gained in archery to other industries, including more than 60 years later, manufacturing components for leading-edge surgical equipment. Excerpted from the second chapter of the final draft of the Easton 100th Anniversary book that's going to be published in the third quarter of 2022. If you're interested in getting a copy of the book, send an email to easton100 at eastonmg.com. I'm George Techmanchev. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, and we'll see you again soon.